Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova Said. I'm host of New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm happy to speak again with Anindita Banerjee, Associate Professor of Comparative Literature at Cornell University and Advisory Board Member and Faculty Fellow at the Atkinson Center for a Sustainable Future Cornell University. Today we speak about a book which Anindita edited, Science Fiction Circuits of the South and East. It was published by Oxford Peter Lang in 2018. Anidita Banerjee also edited the book, which we actually discussed last December, Russian Science Fiction Literature and Cinema, A Critical Reader. And she's the editor of South of the Future, Speculative Biotechnologies and Care Markets in South Asia and Latin America. Currently, Anidita is completing a second single-authored book titled The Chernobyl Effect. Hello, Anidita. Hello, Natalia. It's a pleasure to see you again. I'm very happy to have this opportunity to discuss another book in on science fiction, and congratulations on this publication and welcome. So I can but draw parallels between the book that we discussed a few months ago, uh, Russian Science Fiction Literature and Cinema, and your new book, uh, Science Fiction Circuits of the South and East. However, I do realize that there is some profound difference. Uh, science fiction circuits seems to conceptualize the genre of science fiction in both local and global contexts. Um, in other words, uh, this book invites us to think about science fiction as an artistic phenomenon that translates modifications that happen as a result of diverse interactions and events, of course, understood in the broadest sense. Please tell us about the main goals and inspirations for this um, recent project. Um, Science fiction circuits of the South and East came about, um, as you very correctly summarized, as a way of entering science fiction through the framework of uh, world literature and culture. Uh, rather than uh, through the framework of, uh, uh, of, of, of national cultures. So um, this volume came about because of several different uh, uh, currents that are happening simultaneously in multiple disciplines and across multiple geographic regions and uh, histories. Um, so the first... Um, the moment that inspired uh, this volume was the general turn of science fiction studies from its uh, traditional focus for most of the 20th century on uh, two predominant uh, cultural forces uh, from the Western world, namely um, English and Anglophone, Anglo-American literature and French and Francophone literature. Um, so um, towards the end of the 20th century, I would say more, more at the cusp of the 21st, um, I started working in science fiction studies um, at this turn when um, 
there was a great awareness and receptivity, and I would say hunger to learn more about science fiction worlds beyond the world of Anglo-American and French literatures, as it had traditionally been. And um, through my work first on Russian science fiction, I realized that actually science fiction um, as a genre can never be uh, bounded between, um, uh, uh, you know, the strict uh, bookends of national cultural traditions, because it is a genre that is always already global and transnational in its scope to the extent that it is always about other worlds. So science fiction axiomatically uh, was never, you know, a national literature. It was always global. However, uh, the traditional focus of science fiction studies necessarily also unfolded um, towards the world in the way of um, uh, post-colonial literatures, right, of the European maritime empires, mostly the British empires. So, so people start, uh, have been studying over the past two decades or so um, uh, uh, post-colonial and minority and diasporic science fiction within the English-speaking world in very vibrant and really exciting ways. This includes... Uh, first of all, you know, internationalization in, in studying science fiction production in the former territories of the British Empire. But then again, within especially the Americas, the exciting um, developments uh, that have taken place over the past, I would say, 10 to 20 years has been really intense study and wonderfully innovative scholarship that has come out on um, indigenous and minority science fiction. So, for example, we have very, very good work on um, Afrofuturism, which started out in African-American studies, but now has extended to embrace a much more transatlantic focus of African diaspora literature together with African-American literature. Um, indigenous literature, which also is, uh, you know, outside, operates outside the national framework, as well as within it, but in separate spaces. Um, Latino and Chicano futurism, there has been wonderful scholarship on, um, uh, on these traditions within um, the Anglosphere, as I call it. Uh, our volume takes a lot of energy from this existing scholarship to turn to something that remains, again, woefully understudied. Um, in that, that there, as you know from Russian science fiction, in the socialist world, um, not just in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, but, but it's, you know, the farther sphere of socialist influence, let's say in China, there also has been a very long and rich tradition of science fiction which was also inherently global, specifically in its connections to these um, science fiction uh, 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 narratives of underrepresented groups, both in Western Europe and North America, but also throughout the global South. So again, in formerly colonial territories of Central and Latin America, the Caribbean, um, Africa and other parts of Asia, including the Indian subcontinent. So we wanted to really do a pioneering body of work on 
this competing vision of world science or global science fiction that comes out not only of capitalist modernity and its spread throughout the globe, but of this competing vision, right, of alternative futures um, that came out of the contact, circulation, translation, distribution, adoption of various kinds of science fiction texts, both literary and cinematic, and new media texts like games, for example, uh, between the socialist and post-socialist vis-a-vis the colonial and post-colonial worlds. Yes, the book consists of three parts, uh, another transatlantic, transnationalism behind the Iron Curtain, and Asymptotic East and Subterranean Souths. While telling the truth, each title sounds extremely interesting. And if we had enough time, I would spend probably a couple of minutes speculating about each of these titles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so would you would you comment a little bit on the structure of the book and on each of these parts? Mm-hmm. Um, so the other transatlantic is obviously... Um, a nod to circuits that have uh, not been studied or buried um, in history. When we speak of of transatlantic connections, there are uh, maybe two main things that we think about. Um, One, of course, is uh, the cultural connections between Europe and North America. That is, you know, the dominant framework and within which there are other Atlantic uh, uh, crossings, uh, such as those um, uh, uh, inscribed by the transatlantic slave trade, which are the subaltern circuits of the transatlantic. What uh, nobody knows about or talks about really are Again, the circuits between the so-called east of Europe, right, the (laughs) eastern margins of Europe, and the other side of the Atlantic, whether it be in the Caribbean or in Central America, like Mexico, uh, or for that matter, minority spaces in North America, uh, like uh, uh, African America, right? And the African diaspora that stretches between um, the northern and southern part of the New World. Um, and so this other transatlantic, uh, where we uh, where the arcs uh, are inscribed, let's say, between, you know, Moscow and Havana, or uh, um, uh, 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 or, or revolutionary Russia and the Harlem Renaissance movement in the 1920s, which is the first uh, very influential black cultural movement in the 20th century. Um, uh, uh, Mexican socialism vis-a-vis its Eastern European and North American counterparts. So these are the kinds of circuits that are eliminated in that first section. Um, the second section is also something that kind of gets buried within, behind uh, the monolithic conception of the Eastern Bloc. What does the Eastern Bloc consist um, of? You know, um, uh, there were in fact significant um, uh, walls and barriers to travel, and once again, distribution royalties were really hard to get across the national boundaries um, uh, amongst the Eastern Bloc countries. Something that um, 
Stanislav Lem, for example, the science fiction writer, experienced firsthand. He had a really hard time collecting royalties from all of the different countries in which his work was uh, very popular and broadly translated. But, um, uh, but, uh, but people don't really think about um, the Eastern Bloc as a transnational network of spaces. So once again, from the Western point of view, you know, it's just this lump of places out there. So the second section tries to actually bring out this crisscrossing of boundaries that took place behind, out of sight, behind the Iron Curtain, but was tremendously culturally generative and in fact came back, you know, um, and, and, and shaped uh, cultural production in, in the West uh, uh, in many significant aspects. The card um, section similarly interrogates another kind of monolithic construction of Asia and Asian science fiction. And the two essays in that section focus on um, uh, the non-aligned movement, right, and the movement of texts and ideas and images uh, 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 between uh, the socialist cultures and and uh, and uh, newly independent um, India, and the science fictions that arose from that. Um, and the second essay talks about uh, uh, contemporary China and reverberations of uh, both Soviet science fiction and contemporary Chinese media cultures and youth cultures. Yeah, the, the introduction of the book uh, hints at uh, this necessity to reintroduce science fiction into the literary criticism of today, and I believe you already uh, touched upon this issue. Um, the uh, uh, current aesthetic frameworks are very much probably informed by the phenomena and developments that appeared in science fiction writing produced uh, several decades ago, and to some extent it may sound ironic, but on the other hand, um, this aspect gestures towards some salient features of science fiction that reflect how and probably why the imagined worlds are projected. So um, would you comment on this idea of projecting imaginary worlds as represented through science fiction writing? That is a very rich question, so I'm going to try and tackle it as best as I can. Um, the projection of imaginary worlds and then, if you will, the projecting back mm -hmm. from those imaginations, from those places and imaginary histories is actually a very big motivation here because, as we all know, um, Science fiction, a lot of science fiction deals with the exotic, and this has been, you know, very productively examined by scholars such as John Reader, and you know, who um, uh, posits that the whole hi history of Western science fiction is projected on the, pre sorry, predicated on the projection of the colonial imagination. Right? These, this is a very strong thing. Uh, our um, collection. Um, kind of engages in um, in a speculative exercise, if you will, but with very solid archival footing of how the projected imaginary spaces and histories project back, mm -hmm. right back, right, and where they meet and how this intersection maybe generates um, uh, cultural grounds that um, are completely new 
in a sense, right? And that don't fit any of our preconceived geopolitical or historical frameworks that that are also projections, mm-hmm. right? The cartographic imagination, the historical imagination, these are all projections of human social and cultural activities and biases. So what is so exciting about um, um, exactly what cultural space are we examining in this book or illuminating in this book is that a lot of it flies into the face of the constructs that we all kind of take for granted of how spaces and cultures and histories interact. They go against the grain and they also kind of um, break new ground in the sense of almost each essay presents a new paradigm, right, of looking at these contact zones. You, you note elsewhere that uh, science fiction literature is to some extent informed by uh, geopolitical locations. And mm-hmm. the um, science fiction, for example, of the Soviet Union transforms through translations as well as through the integration into a broader cultural context. Now, I'm very fascinated um, by this idea of uh, transformation as a result of translation. Uh, and there is a section on translation of science fiction literature in in your collection. Would you comment on this a little bit? Yes. So for me, um, as a literary scholar, I think translation studies, even though with actually the emergence of the debates around what is world literature, this is a very core concern of the discipline of comparative literature in which I work. Um, uh, uh, what what constitutes world literature? On the one hand, it goes back to your question about projection. To you know, the consensus opinion is, of course, that it is also a conception that rose out of a projection from the West, right? Uh, Goethe in the nineteenth century, reading of all things, a translation of a Chinese novel came up with this conception of world literature in which my national literature is actually not that different from the kind of stories the Chinese tell. So. This has been, of course, a much debated topic for some time now in comparative literature. And translation, naturally, has also emerged as um, a a very interesting focus of research and of conversation around this concept of world literature. And yet, I think because of the way that our institutions are structured, because of the way that uh, we are trained in the various disciplines, that it is actually um, uh, not so easy to translate the theoretical debates about translation into the actual study of translation as a material phenomenon, as things that actually circulate, right? Mm-hmm. As what the scholar Balavin Katmani in his highly acclaimed book that came out last year, uh, it's called Recoding World Literature. He calls this phenomenon bibliomigrancy. That, so the mi- migrancy of books, of texts mm-hmm. itself. So I, th- I think that there has been relatively little attention devoted to the practices and the material lives of of translations themselves. So it was because, as I write in my introduction, the you know I came to study Russian science fiction because of a very well organized and institutionalized worldwide 
translation project, right, that had very, very concrete material lives around the globe. I um, uh, uh, find that it is imperative to actually study translation as a material practice and not just a theoretical question. And so for, um, and then I discovered speaking to various colleagues who, you know, have worked in various parts of the world um, um, where the same books that I was reading in, you know, in Bengali and uh, one of the many languages of the Indian subcontinent were also being read, let's say, um, by my colleagues in Latin America uh, at around the same time. And I realized that this is yet another kind of cultural industry generated from the socialist world and transmitted all across the various cultural uh, lines and divisions and geopolitical boundaries of, of, of uh, the post-colonial or newly decolonized parts of the world that really um, should get a bit of sustained attention. Now, this in this volume, we have not been able to do that, but hopefully sometime in the future, there will be an opportunity to actually study this network as it is. So, But I hope that this book kind of opens the door towards more people paying attention to that. What works, literary and not literary, does uh, this collection uh, focus on? So uh, I guess my question here is more uh, specific. Um, was there any specific collection of works that you wanted to include when you started this project? And uh, if this initial plan uh, changed in any way as the project progressed? Uh, no, actually, the po- whole point of the project was not to start with a canon. Mm-hmm. Because as it turned out, almost for every author who is included in the volume, it became this journey of discovery, as it turned out, that we all started with something and then found something completely different. So that was a very, very exciting part of the project because um, all of us started out with some very a clear idea about what uh, we would write about. And in the process, um, the, the final you know, essays that emerged and got included in the collection were much richer and denser and proliferative than the authors had originally started out planning. So we as editors, for us, it was a joy to actually take part in this journey. And um, obviously we wrote the introduction at the very end and we ourselves marveled at how different the introduction would have been as it was conceived at the at the beginning stages of the book. So in the main focus was um, literary works or... Uh, in that sense, in, uh, if you're speaking of media, mm-hmm. uh, yes, uh, an overwhelming majority of the works that are examined are indeed literary works. Mm-hmm. But but there is, to the extent that I believe that science fiction, just like being transnational, inherently transnational, is also an inherently transmedial genre. There is a lot of attention that's paid at various points to visual texts, for example. So you were referring earlier to Sybil and Forrester's article on the translation of names, right? That essay has a number of fantastic visuals. So uh, Sibylin pays equal attention to the translation of visual forms into literary form and vice versa. And as I said, 
the last essay by Jin Yi Chu on Dmitry Glukovsky's Metro 2033 in Contemporary China is, of course, uh, devoted to the platform of gaming and then its allied internet-mediated uh, forms um, of, you know, fan groups and Wikipedia and social media and so on and so forth. You, uh, you, your research and your books demonstrate that um, a science fiction um, changes over the time, of course, uh, and there are some, um, so to speak, inner or internal uh, modifications. However, um, science fiction writing also um, establishes some sort of dialogue with other genres and styles. Um, I, I think, well, sometimes we like to... Uh, and make some predictions on uh, how the uh, um, genres will develop in the future. So would you um, talk a little bit about some future projections, so to speak, for science fiction? Yeah, I think that it is. it may actually be more useful to think of science fiction a little beyond the boundaries of genre per se, right, as a fixed kind of form or a set of conventions. And this, again, is um, something I emphasized a good deal in my monograph, my first book, We Modern People, Science Fiction and the Making of Russian Modernity, is that, that I actually am quite resistant to this notion of looking at science fiction in um, uh, fixed forms, Right? and in linear kind of trajectories of evolution, that science fiction, much more than a genre, it is a mode of relating to the world. This, you know, Veronica Hollinger, the theorist, uh, uh, supports this view of science fiction as a mode of storytelling. There have been many. Of course, this is a, you know, I, I can construct a whole bibliography, but to just give you a sampling of other <laughs> scholars much more theoretically involved with the science fiction as a genre per se, uh, have stated Carl Friedman um, talks of science fiction as an effect. Right, it's what you're left with rather than what was intended, which I find a very attractive notion right. to think of. That uh, to think of, of of literature as what it leaves you with, rather than you know some sort of great mm -hmm. plan of the author or the filmmaker. Right. So both uh, these uh, terms, mode of Hollinger's and effect of Friedman's, I find uh, very useful to deal with a genre that really refuses to be tied down, right, in time, place, or forms, or its manifestations, that it is always actually breaking its own boundaries. Uh, Ishman Chichirone suggested a term that I use quite extensively in my first book, which is science fictionality, mm -hmm. so it's a quality, again, rather than a formal set of rules and conventions, right? And so, um, so I have always come to science fiction not as a sector of literature, whether higher or lower, or um, uh, certainly uh, one can speak in terms of markets, but markets are not, you know, intrinsic to the to a genre itself. Uh, so, um, so that's, you know, my rather counterintuitive, but scholarly, I think, uh, well supported. Yeah, I, I think to science fiction. Yes, it's quite fascinating to think about science fiction as a mode or as an effect. 
and mm-hmm. how it affects readers. That's 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 a very uh, insightful way to think about um, genres in general. So, but uh, I'm sure you uh, teach uh, science fiction uh, literature to graduate and uh, undergraduate students, and uh, I am uh, intrigued by their perception of of this of this writing. So what what is the most productive way, in your opinion, to teach science fiction literature uh, to graduate and undergraduate students, for example? That is a wonderful question because I do love teaching and uh, teaching science fiction in particular. Um, and um, But first, let me add actually a coda to my answer to your previous question, and um, which also will give me a bridge to talk a little bit about teaching. Uh, so the coda... Uh, was that that one of the debates that I often, you know, participate in and certainly read about constantly is where to put, you know, um, post-Soviet science fiction. Is post-Soviet science fiction even science fiction really in the Soviet sense and so forth? And we have, you know, a couple of essays in that uh, uh, vein in uh, uh, the previous volume you and I talked about Russian science fiction literature and cinema, this seems to be uh, quite a productive um, sphere of debate um, in post-Soviet literature and culture. And I strongly feel that what we are, you know, you it's really hard to say, okay, you know, let's say Sorokin's Blizzard mm-hmm. is exactly like the Strugatsky science fiction. You cannot carry the model over that historical rupture. However, what you can say if you look at a work like Sorokin's Blizzard is that that it does have, it is both written as a kind of science fictionality as its premise, and it produces a science fictional effect. Mm -hmm. So this is one example that I wanted to put out there, which brings me to teaching because I teach science fiction literally on, you know, this kind of a planetary scale, mm-hmm. right? And in a very broadly comparative framework. Strangely enough, I have yet to teach a course on Russophone science fiction or Soviet science fiction or Eastern Bloc science fiction. I have never taught such a course. So all my courses are on uh, this broader view of science fiction as, you know, a a modern effect and a flow between different cultures. The way that I organize um, science fiction courses are actually around concerns or preoccupations, which also kind of reflects the organization of my first book, my monograph, where I speak about science fiction and modernity in Russia. That book is organized around preoccupations, not around, not in chronological order, not in terms of who, which author knew whom and how did they write together. So it, it basically just takes off the walls around literature per se or genre per se, and looks at science fiction as a kind of way of reading culture, broadly speaking, right? So in my courses, I usually organize them around issues, usually the most urgent issues, right? Confronting our time because science fiction holds the distinction of being the most attuned to the unfolding present and the the upcoming future. And so some of these concerns might be, you know, very basic and ontological, like what is the human, right? Um, And what, you know, what are its others that are Mm -hmm. utopian and scary? 
we speak about um, uh, 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 about uh, world building, like how the how worlds are constructed in science fiction texts from across very radically divergent contexts and perspectives. We speak oftentimes about non-human futures as in environmental concerns, right? To the extent of how is our fate uh, wrapped up in the fate of fates of multiple non-human beings and things, which is something, of course, that uh, is very much at the forefront of all our minds at this particular juncture. And it's really wonderful. It takes a a lot of careful curation, but it, it has been for me very gratifying to uh, be able to use this kind of organizational framework to actually break through a lot of the cultural hierarchies that get built into courses, as in, I, you know, in that, in in this kind of organizational schema, um, texts that are available in translation from, Mm -hmm. let's say, from the former, you know, Eastern Bloc, are on the same plane, right, Mm -hmm. as let's say, A.G. Wells (laughs) and his environmental fiction. So for me, it is gratifying to kind of break down the hierarchies uh, of world literature or world culture also a little bit um, in this pedagogical method of teaching science fiction. Yeah, all the topics you mentioned are so rich. Um, What is human, what is uh, non-human, and how our perception of uh, being human, for example, changes uh, taking into consideration some maybe like ideological or political ruptures or some atrocities. That's, that's mm-hmm. a fascinating area to think about and uh, I'm sure to teach. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so last December, we were, when we were talking about uh, Russian science fiction literature and cinema critical reader, uh, you also mentioned your current project, the uh, Chernobyl Effect. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, wondering what's the main focus for this inquiry, if it's somehow connected with these two previous projects. Well, uh, you might have, especially in light of this current conversation we are having, that I haven't let go of the word effect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, because, I mean... Effect is a very, for has been, I think, a very uh, useful and generative concept for my work as a whole. So the Chernobyl effect basically takes Chernobyl not as an event that then gets, you know, taken up and somehow represented or reflected in diverse cultural texts, literary texts, media texts, cross-genre cross-platform text, but something that has, that operates as an effect that exerts a kind of a paradigmatic transformation in our imagination of what nuclearity has been in the past, what it is in the present, and how we might imagine ourselves in a future shaped by radiation. And this is also a meditation on what Chernobyl can do to our, um, not just imagination, but hopefully uh, in, in a non-prescriptive way, um, actions in the face of the Anthropocene, right? The new era that is widely now consensually understood to be the new geological era in which we are living, where humans have basically 
radically and irrevocably transformed all of the planet's um, elemental systems, uh, in which, of course, uh, one of the markers that geologists have pointed out um, that marked the beginning of the Anthropocene is 1950, which is the golden spike when uh, uh, radionuclides are detected in basically everything on the planet, right? The soil, the earth, trees and water, mm-hmm. um, humans, right? We all carry traces of strontium-40. So this is, you know, the golden spike is when statistically uh, radiation begins to be registered in all living and non-living systems of the Earth. And that's one date, right, for the beginning of the Anthropocene. There are others, of course, and it's a very highly debated concept. But my hope is that, that, you know, Chernobyl, in this book, I kind of play with the effect of Chernobyl as one of... uh, kind of analogous to this golden spike yet another turning point, so to speak, right? Turning point not just for an event and a place and the way that people speak about it or write about it, but a turning point for our thinking about the relationship between ourselves, nuclear power, and our future. Mm-hmm. I hope that very soon we will have another conversation. <laughs> I hope so too. Yes, I'm very much intrigued by this um, uh, upcoming publication. Well, thank you so much for uh, today's conversation, Anindita. Uh, it's a pleasure always. I'm very much inspired by all these ideas that we discussed today, specifically about uh, science fiction, not as a genre, but as some mode or some attitude to the world, for example, and uh, science fiction as, um, um, as, as, as an effect. Uh, these are um, uh, fascinating ideas, and I'm also very much intrigued by the idea that you mentioned uh, migration of books, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and uh, th- that idea about uh, translation that triggers transformation as well. Well, thank you so much, Nindita. Thank you. Today I spoke with Anindita Banerjee about the collection that she edited, A Science Fiction Circuits of the South and East. Thank you for listening to the Literary Studies Podcast in the New Books Network.